you were listening to the Red Hill Church Sermon Podcast. Red Hill Church is a gospel-centered, missional church in the Edwardsville Glen Carbon community of the St. Louis Metro East. We exist to glorify God and make disciples by sharing the gospel and sharing our lives. Good morning, Red Hill, and happy Mother's Day, ladies. Today we're reading from Ephesians chapter 2, the first 10 verses. I'll give you 14 more seconds to find your place. I wasn't really counting, so I'm going to start now. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath, as the others were also. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. The word of the Lord. Thanks again, Scott. Well, you, uh, if you were here last week, you may have noticed that the walls have gotten their first coat of paint. And I want to say a big thanks to Jerry Rosentretter and Robin Kane, who spent a lot of time up here making that happen. So thanks to them for doing that. Yeah. Look, you just, and, and also, if you were here last week, you're like, hey, the chairs are different. You don't know what's going to happen. All I'm going to say is don't get comfortable, right? Stick around long enough. You're going to have to change seats, and we're going to put you to work, all right? Um, you're also potentially noticing how handsome I look today in my new Red Hill t-shirt or how ugly I look in my new Red Hill t-shirt. But either way, I have a new Red Hill t-shirt on. And maybe you're like, how do I get one of those new Red Hill t-shirts? I'm so glad that you asked or were thinking of asking or are now wondering since I prompted you to think about asking or wondering. And the answer is we have a limited number of these and the first time they're going to be available is next Sunday night at 6.40 before our member meeting starts. So the doors will open at 6.40. You can get t-shirts at 6.40. Those of you coming to the member meeting, those of you who are members, or some of you have been all the way through all of the membership processes, but you haven't done your member interview yet. And, and we're like, well, maybe a free t-shirt is the motivation they need to finish the process, because honestly, nothing else that we've tried has worked yet, and we haven't tried all that many things, like it's not a criticism or anything, it's just a statement of fact. If you want a free t-shirt, we're gonna make those available at our member meeting, and we have a limited number of sizes, a small number of kids' sizes, and those are gonna be set out and available before the member meeting starts, so everybody can grab those next Sunday night um, before the member meeting. So if you haven't scheduled your member meeting or your member interview yet, and you'd like to do that, 
Stephen's up here in the front row. He's one of the uh, bald, bearded, beautiful men that we have at Red Hill, um, that we celebrate our baldness because we have no alternative, some of us. There's just no alternative, so you might as well lean into it real good and hard. Um, I also want to say happy Mother's Day. And uh, tr- traditionally at churches, this is a day when like flowers are handed out or gifts are given away. And I don't know if we've ever done that at Red Hill. And I just want to acknowledge that Mother's Day is wonderful and complex and complicated and sometimes painful and sometimes extremely difficult and sometimes exceedingly easy because it causes us to think about wonderful moms, terrible moms, moms who aren't here anymore and we wish that they were, moms who have loved us unconditionally, moms who are imperfect, and and it causes some moms to think about kids who are imperfect, kids who love them, kids who have wandered away, and kids who have passed away. And so I want to say to all of you who are here this morning, we all have reasons to be grateful for our moms. If for nothing else, we are alive because of them. And also, I want to just, just pause for a moment and say, it's a complex, complicated, and wonderful thing to be surrounded by human beings and to live a human experience. And I just want to say, we love you and we see you and we celebrate you and we grieve with you. And we want to say to all of you, happy Mother's Day. And to all of you having a hard day today to say that that's okay. It's okay for it to be complex, complicated, and difficult. That you're still loved just the same and still celebrated with us just the same. And we will celebrate with you and we will grieve with you and we will walk side by side with you because... That's what Jesus does for us, right? That's what Jesus does for us. So we're in Ephesians chapter two, and uh, of course, naturally, instead of starting with Ephesians chapter two, I wanna just roll back a couple of verses, even though I didn't have Scott read those, and I know what you're thinking. I could take Scott reading to me all the time, more and more, but I wanna preach, um, so I wanna do part of it myself. Um, And I wanna say, Ephesians two starts with the word and, which, as we know, is a conjunction. It links things together. That's part of its function. Some of you are going schoolhouse rock right now. Conjunction, junction. Um, But we have to know, he says, and you were dead. And and you were dead. That's how it starts. And so I want to just roll back to verse 20, right up above that in chapter 1. It says, he, that's God, God exercised this power in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens. So Jesus was dead and God brought him to life. That's what this first verse is going to link to. Jesus was dead and God brought him to life. And then it says, and you were dead. Jesus was dead, God brought him to life and you were dead. You were dead, you were dead in your trespasses, you were dead in your sins. Jesus was dead in the grave and God brought him back to life. We believe in the resurrection because it's true. We believe in the resurrection because it's in the Bible. We believe in the resurrection and we need to believe in the resurrection because we need there to have been a resurrection of Jesus. If he's not the first fruit from among the dead, then you and I are still dead. Because the nature of being dead is this, you can't help yourself. There's nothing that a dead person can do for themselves to make them not dead anymore. And this is the state of every person who's not in Christ. You're dead. You're dead. We need a God with resurrection power. 
So Paul, he says, you're dead. You were dead, excuse me. It's past tense because he's writing to Christians. You were dead. You were dead. And there are five truths about that existence and death that he's gonna unpack and then I'm gonna unpack. The first one's this. It had a cause, right? It had a, it had a cause. And the cause was our trespasses and sins, You were dead in your trespasses and sins. It's like our trespasses and sins were the coffin that encased us. We were stuck in those things. It's important in the book of Ephesians, it's important for us to understand. And again, this is why I've said a few times, like it's a St. Louis thing to say, what high school did you go to? And when you answer that, it tells us a lot of things about you that may or may not actually be true, but people can make a lot of assumptions about you based on where you went to high school. And I went to high school in Cushing, and you're like, I don't, I'm not familiar with that. It's not from here. Oh, okay, then you're not from St. Louis, right? So you can't evaluate that. But if I said Oklahoma, well, then you're going to go like, okay, all right, I got some, you know, I got some thoughts about you now. They're all probably fairly accurate unless they relate to being an actual cowboy, which I'd love to be, but just am not. I don't make boots in my size, and when they do, they look ridiculous. (laughs) There's nothing I can do about it other than lean into it or lean out of it. I've chosen out on that one. We were dead. It had a cause. Our trespasses and sins, Romans 6.23, says that the wages of sin is death. If you work at something, there's a consequence for the work. You get paid. There's a wage associated with labor. And the Bible says that the results of our sin is death. Paul says you were dead in your trespasses and sins. They had captured you. They had kept you in death. That's what was causing our death. In our trespasses and sins in which, he says, you previously lived according to the ways of this world. So our death uh, had a cause, our existence in death had a cause. It also has a culture. It has a culture, the ways of this world. You previously lived according to the ways of this world. I thought about trying to enumerate the ways of this world, and I settled on just a few things. Follow your heart and trust your desires. That's the way of this world. Follow your heart and trust your desires. Follow your heart. It will never lead you astray. It will always take you to true love's kiss. It will always take you to the right career. It will always take you to the right home. It will always take you to the right vehicle. It will always take you to people that are trustworthy and who will treasure the gift of your friendship and your presence. Trust your heart, follow your heart, and trust your desires. This is what the way of our world is. Everything that's inside of you that's a desire is a good thing that must be fulfilled, that must be honored, that must be revered by all. Not just respected, but revered as if it is itself the unwritten law of the universe that my desires are the thing that define me and fulfilling those desires is the only thing that can actually bring me any sense of peace, any sense of belonging, any sense of meaning, any sense of worth. The way of this world is follow your heart, trust your desires. But the pathway is marked by things like anger, increasingly, People are angry everywhere. And it's, it's not like it's this slow rolling anger. Michael Bird was uh, up checking out the box recently 
He's a church planter that we support on the north side of St. Louis. And he said, he's like, uh, I was at a gas station with my son. And he said, my son's on one side of the gas station. It's a quick trip. So his son's at the soda side and Bird's at the coffee side. You know what I'm talking about? At a big quick trip. And he said uh, that the guy who came like to the gas pumps right after him, he came in to pay. And when he went out, his car had been stolen. So somebody had stolen his car. And Bird was like, which is terrible. He goes, but then that guy came in with a gun and began pointing it at the employees of the Quick Trip, saying, you're gonna show me the footage right now. And he's like, Bird was like, he's waving this gun all over the place. My son is on the far side. Uh, I'm on the other side. And my son is looking at me with eyes like this. He said, I looked at him, I was like, you come right here. You don't look at anybody else. You don't talk to you. Just come right here, right now. You come straight here to me. And, and, uh, and I'm like, I, I don't know what seeing the footage is gonna do for this guy because that dude left in a car and all you have now is your feet. So you're not catching him. You know what I mean? Like, you're, you saw the footage. That's great. Does he know who took it? Is that why he wants to see the footage? Why does he come in and just say, could you show me the footage? Because everybody's angry. Everybody's angry. Explosively angry. And you know, the step after anger that I observe in our culture is division. Everybody has to take a stand on everything and everybody who disagrees with me on anything is absolutely my enemy on everything else. Regardless of how you might have treated me over the course of decades, if you disagree with me about this, you don't love me, you don't care about me, you have invalidated me, and now we can't be together, which of course can only lead to one ending, which is isolation. Isolation. And ringing in the back of my brain is one of God's first statements, not the very first one, about humanity. It's not good for us to be alone. Isolation, which then, of course, infuriates us. Because what we want is to be loved, to be accepted, to have community. But because we're on this path, we can't find that, so we settle for medicating it with things like pornography or alcohol or gambling or spending money, or fill in the blank with whatever the other things are, which leads only to frustration and despair, and then you die. And that's the pathway of the world. And Jesus already told us this. You have a real enemy who's come to steal, kill, and destroy. And you were dead. And you were living like someone who was dead. According to the pathway of the world. You know why? Because you were dead. You didn't know any better and you couldn't do anything to help yourself. That was the state, follower of Jesus. That was the state that you were in. And those of us who have loved ones, friends, family, neighbors, coworkers, employees, classmates, teachers, and so on, who don't know Jesus, that is the state that they are in. They cannot help themselves. They're dead in their trespasses and sins. That existence has a cause, it has a culture, and it has a commander. See what I'm doing here, guys? I'm alliterating like a true Baptist. Cause, culture, a commander. According to the ruler of the power of the air, 
the spirit now working in the disobedient. Who is it? Um, could it be Satan? I almost showed a church lady thing, but then I was like, you know what? Uh, we, just full disclosure, we can just barely turn the sound on right now. Like that's, it is taking all of us getting here and running it and Danny's doing an incredible job, so it's not a criticism of him, but uh, you know, like we got paint on the walls and then we move stuff back in and also I thought it might be a little irreverent. The ruler of the power of the air, that's inspired by the spirit of God, written by Paul for eternity Satan being described as the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the disobedient. In Matthew 4, if you flip over to Matthew 4, verses 8 through 10, this really interesting thing is in Matthew 4. It's the temptation of Jesus. It describes Jesus going off into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, and that happens after 40 days of fasting. In verses 8 and 9, the last temptation that Jesus faces with the devil in this moment says again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And in verse 9, and he said to him, I will give you all these things if you will fall down and worship me. In verse 10, it says, then Jesus said to him, go away, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Probably heard that before somewhere, familiar with that at least vaguely. You know what I find interesting about all of that right there is that Jesus doesn't say those aren't yours to give. He doesn't correct him. I mean, maybe he's just passing over that statement. Maybe he's like, you're not even worth arguing with because you're a liar. That's all you are. In fact, later Jesus would say that he's the father of lies and when he's lying, he's speaking his native tongue. But he says, if you'll fall down and worship me, I'll give you all of the kingdoms of the earth. And Jesus doesn't say they're not yours to give. He says you should worship God alone. There is an animating force behind evil, and it's not God. Satan doesn't crawl up into our sound system, and the truth is, is that I don't think I've risen to the level of, you know, spiritual power and significance to such a way that Satan is kind of like trying to personally attack me. But I can tell you that I think what he's doing is far more clever than trying to ruin sound or ruin a person. I think what he is trying to do is to create archetypes. I think he's trying to create paths and processes and cultures that cause us to isolate, frustrate, lose everything of value, and then die. The existence of our death had a commander. It also had a community. Paul says, we too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclination of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath, as the others were also. I don't know why it's in me. I don't know why it's in you. I don't know why it's in us. I don't know why it exists as an expectation that people will walk into a church and find in that church Christians who believe they are better than others. I don't know why that's in me, that, that I'm like, well, I'm, I'm just better than some people are. 
I'm morally more good than they are. I don't know why some of us are discouraged about our testimonies. Like, I'm really disappointed that I didn't get addicted to drugs before I got saved because it'd be a way better testimony if I'd gotten addicted to drugs first, but now I'm already a Christian, so it's not like I can backslide into that. Then I'm like a worse Christian, you know? It's not like superpower Jesus rescued me. I don't, I don't know what it is about us that misses this important point. You were dead. You were living in the pathway, the only pathway that you knew. Follow your heart and trust your desires. You were living under the power, under the rule, in, like, in the swimming pool that Satan built. That's, that's the only place that you could swim. You didn't know any other kind of pool. You didn't know any other kind of water. You didn't know any other kind of culture. You had no other native tongue. That was home for you. Paul's trying to say over and over again to us in this book, you're either in Christ or you are not in Christ. We all were like that. We all were like that. There's not some of us who was like, Jesus just had to do a little bit of work to save. It's, it's not, I mean, there's just dead. It's not the princess bride. There's not mostly dead and dead dead, you know, where all you can do is look through their pockets for loose change. There's just dead. This is a binary thing. Either you are dead or you are not dead. You're not mostly dead or partly dead. You might be dying, which... All of us who are living are in fact doing, but it's a binary thing and it has this community and the community is children under wrath. Children under wrath. Everyone who is not in Christ is under wrath. You know what that means? It's absolutely the right thing for God to punish sin. It's the right thing. It's the right thing for God to punish sin. If God isn't gonna punish sin, then God can't punish child molesters. He can't punish rapists. He can't punish mass murderers. He can't punish people who drive five miles an hour below the speed limit in the far left lane. You know what I'm saying? There's gotta be some justice in this world. If God isn't going to punish sin, then God isn't just. And if he's not just, what is he? How are we supposed to know whether or not we're okay with him if he isn't just? And by the way, what's the point of the death of Jesus anyway if God isn't just? If there's no justice and it's all a guessing game, why send Jesus to the cross at all? Just seems mean. Everyone who's not in Christ has a community. That community is children under wrath. It's absolutely just. It's absolutely the right thing for God to punish sin. And anyone not in Christ is in sin. And everyone still in sin lives under that curse and lives with that punishment. And that is both sad and stupid. You know why it's stupid? Because the punishment's already been doled out for it. The punishment was all given to Jesus. It's like imagine you're a kid. I was a kid, I had an older brother, and you do something wrong. And your dad's like, somebody has to get a spanking. Some of you well, are younger than me. A spanking is what you do when you love your child and they misbehave, right? You apply, as my parents would say, the rod of discipline to the backside of rebellion. It's all just a joke. If you don't spank your kids, that's fine. They're your kids, all right? I was spanked. 
I do something wrong. My dad comes home and says, someone's gonna get spanked for this. I don't care who it is. My brother says, I'll take the licks. My brother gets the spanking. And then I go, you know what? I'm gonna take one too. No, if the punishment's gone, listen, there's a lot that you could know about me and not know this. I did not like spankings. For me, it was weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. I know some of you, like Josh has told me, it's like, nope, I'm not giving you the satisfaction. Not me, brother. If all you need is satisfaction, I will bawl like a baby. I got no pride. I mean, cry, scream, wail. Nothing's even happened yet. My mom once spanked me with a Nerf ping pong paddle which is like the thinnest layer of plastic and hollow inside. And I wailed like she was whipping me with a rose bush. I left and went back in my room. My brother was like, that didn't even hurt. And I was like, I know. He's <laughs> like, I just want you to stop hitting me. Please don't spank me. You know, like, please, anything, I, whatever. If the punishment has been given, why would you willingly take the punishment too? If you haven't seen the passion of the Christ, it's not great what Jesus went through. It is not good. Sorry, I'm thinking of a story that I don't have permission to tell, but find me another time and maybe we'll tell you the story. It's not a great experience. Why would you want to stay in that punishment? Why would you want to receive a punishment that has already been given? It's just for Jesus. It's, excuse me, it's just for God to have taken that punishment and applied it all to Jesus. He can do that if he wants to. He's the one who has the right to give the punishment. He has given the punishment for your sin to Jesus. He's already done it. All the punishment has been given out, which means all that's left for us fellow sinners, by the way, is not to punish each other when we sin, but to help exhort, edify, encourage, rebuke, reprove, and correct to walk with somebody through that sin, past that sin and into and towards holiness. It had a community. It wasn't a great place to hang out under wrath. So sometimes I draw out my notes and when I was doing the first draft of the sermon, I tried to write out wrath really cool and then I wrote out us underneath it and then I tried to like, like draw in like wrath, like pressing down and raining down. In the end, it looked really stupid and not at all terrifying. So I didn't use it in my notes. Just wanted to say, it's hard to picture what wrath is. Just know that it's this. Every ounce of power that God has, every, every capacity for mental focus, every source of intensity and passion that he can direct against sin, that's what wrath is. That was all put on Jesus for me and for you. We were under that wrath. But he says, now you have been placed in Christ. So it had a cause, it had a culture, it had a commander, it had a community, and it had a cure. It had a cure. Yeah, thank you. That's good, right? This is a real white audience. It's okay for a little talk back. You know, all right? I'm just saying. We were all of that. I was all of that. I was dead and helpless in my sin. I was living, following my own heart, trusting my own desires in this community of people who were under wrath and all of us being led through this course 
by Satan, like just walking the path that he paved for us and then two words changed it all. But God, that's how it changed. That's how it changed for every person who has ever been changed. But God, not, and I, then I woke up. Then all of a sudden I thought, I'm tired of being dead. I think I'll be alive now. No, but God, but God, who was rich in mercy, who was rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. The cure was grace. That was the cure for you not your goodness. Grace, <laughs> our existence in death, our struggle, our enslavement, our hopelessness, it was all real, but it wasn't all powerful. It was all real, but because of God, it wasn't at all permanent. That is not where I live anymore. That is not home for me anymore. That's not my community anymore. That's not my culture anymore. That's not my commander anymore. Two words changed my whole existence, but God. That changed everything for me. Dead people can't do anything for themselves. They can't help themselves. They can't stop being dead, but God. But God, who is rich in mercy. Rich in mercy. And here's what I picture God, just walking in with stacks of mercy this morning and just being like, make it rain! And just throwing mercy everywhere like he's a billionaire and all he's got is mercy to throw out on everybody. And you're like, yeah, but you don't know who I am. And I'm like, yeah, I do. You were dead. I know exactly who you are. There's not different states of dead. You were dead. That's exactly who you are. But God, being rich in mercy... Rich in mercy. How much mercy does he have? A lot of mercy. Is it enough mercy? Well, you were dead and now you're alive, which had nothing to do with you. It had to do with God who's rich in mercy. Because of the great love that he had for us, he made us alive with Christ. Why would he make you alive with Christ? Why would he do that? Because he loves you. He loves you. You you. That person whose parents don't love them, he loves you. That person who feels alone in the whole world that nobody cares about them, he loves you. That person who wishes they were smarter or taller or skinnier or richer or just somehow innately better than what they are, he loves you. He loves you. He loves you. That's why he did it, because he loves you. He made a decision a long time ago that he was going to love you. There's nothing you can do about it. He made his decision. He already told us. He chose us before the foundation of the world to make us holy and blameless. Why would he do all of that? Because he loves you. How can he do all that? Because he's rich in mercy. He's loaded. He's loaded with mercy. He's got more than enough mercy you are saved by grace. Let it settle in. Us and Jesus, dead. Us and Jesus, resurrected from death by God. You have been saved by grace. And then he says, he raised us up with him. He's talking about God. He raised us up with him. And he seated us with him in the heavens. And where is our seat? It's in Christ Jesus. He raised us up. He seated us in the heavens in Christ Jesus. And by the way, well, where's Jesus in the heavens? 
Well, if you scroll back or look back in verses 21, 22, 23 of chapter 1, far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion, and every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come, and he subjected everything under his feet and appointed him as the head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. Where's Jesus? He's seated at the right hand of the Father. He's seated in power. Where are you? You're in Christ. Well, I don't deserve to be there. No kidding. No joke. That's what, that's actually what it says. That's the whole point. You don't deserve it. You couldn't earn it. You can't buy it. You can't divine and figure out how to get it for yourself. You were dead and he just gave it to you. And why would he give it to you? Because he's crazy about you. And how could he give it to you? Because he's loaded with mercy. He's got more than enough mercy. Well, I don't belong there. I know. And yet, here you are. How many of you who are older than about 30 have said, it's a good thing social media didn't exist when I was a kid. Otherwise, I wouldn't be able to do what I'm doing now. That's me. I'm like, y'all would not let me be your pastor because the Wayback Machine would be like, this dude was an idiot. <laughs> he did all kinds of stupid stuff and said all kinds of stupid stuff. And there's no way that he should be allowed to be where he is today. That's true of all of us. No matter how small or big we have made our lives, no matter how successful or how big of a failure we are, none of us, if we're honest about ourselves, deserve to be where we are. And certainly none of us deserves to be seated at the right hand of the Father, placed in Christ for all eternity, where he's the head and we're the body and everything is placed under his feet, which are, by the way, part of the body. Let it settle in on you. You're somewhere you don't deserve to be. You're somewhere that you couldn't purchase the ticket for. You're somewhere that you couldn't earn your way into. You couldn't manipulate your way into. You couldn't think your way into or strategize your way into. And why couldn't you? Because you were dead. You were dead. But God, because he's so rich in mercy, he saved you by grace. And why would he do that? Why would he, why would he do that, though? Why would he do that? And the answer is in verse seven. So that in the coming ages, he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. We have a God who wants to be known. He wants to be known. He's not up in the heavens going like, I'm not telling you anything about me that's important. And you're gonna have to work really hard. No, Jesus himself said, ask and it'll be given to you. Seek and you find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Well, that's New Testament. Great, in the Old Testament, God said, everyone who seeks me finds me. He's like a two-year-old playing hide and seek. Have you played hide and seek with a two-year-old? Don't count real high, that's all I'm saying. Because you can count to three or 300. When you go ready or not, here I come, they're gonna be doing this. You're like, you're supposed to hide. They're like, oh, yeah. Can you see me now? Yeah, you're also not supposed to tell us where you are, right? This is what God does. He wants to be known. He doesn't want to be known as someone might pretend that he is. He doesn't want to be co-opted for causes. He doesn't want to be conscripted into somebody's political agendas and plans. He wants to be known for who he really is. 
And what does he want to put on display? The immeasurable riches of his grace and his kindness that has been shown to us. Where? In Christ Jesus. I hope it's settling in a little bit on you. That you're either in Christ or you're not in Christ. And if you're in Christ, then just like if you went to Hazelwood East or Parkway North or Edwardsville or Alton High School or Granite City High School or some private school, there's all kinds of things that that tells us about you if you are, in fact, in Christ. And by the way, it should be something that you can tell yourself about who you really are too when Satan wants to whisper into your ear. One of my tactics in those moments, by the way, has been when Satan says, yeah, you know, you don't deserve it. You're a loser. You're a sinner. You're a failure. Is to say all those things are true and simultaneously irrelevant. (laughs) Because I didn't walk into the place that I'm in. I was placed in the place that I'm in. Someone picked me up and put me there. And Paul elaborates, for you're saved by grace through faith, uh, faith, and this is not of yourselves, it's God's gift. You're saved by grace. In my first draft, I drew a train, and I was like, it looks more like a hot dog than a train, so I bailed on the train, but I called it the grace train. And I was like, I'm a passenger in the grace train. Grace is taking me somewhere. And where's, where does grace take me? In other words, it's not effort that takes me. I'm just a passenger. Grace is taking me somewhere. It takes me through this tunnel called faith. So I I go through faith. And what's on the other side of faith? Salvation. That's what's on the other side. You're saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's God's gift. True story. I was like, I could draw a ticket booth and a guy selling tickets and it just says, free tickets. And I was like, I can't draw that well, so I'm not even gonna do it. Not only am I a passenger on the train, I didn't even have to pay for the ticket. Somehow I just was put on the train. I was dead and God made me alive. Grace. It's God's gift. He says, not from works so that no one can boast. What's the big deal with not bragging about it? Here's what it is. Nobody needs to be as powerful, as rich, as smart, or as good as me to be saved. They just need to be as needy as me. They just need to be as needy as I am. I was needy. That's the, that's, that's the thing, is you go, I need it. I need help that I can't provide for myself. I need Jesus to do something for me. I need God to save me. That's all that's, requ- like, that's, that's my contribution, is a deficit. That's what I brought to the table, is a deficit, is honesty about my need. They need to be as needy as I am. They need to be as lost as I, as I was, I should say. They need to be as helpless as I was, and they need to be as dead as I was, and then they need to be as honest as I was and say, I am all of those things, but God, being rich in mercy, because the great love with which he loves me has given me grace. It's God's gift. And then I really like verse 10, and something struck me about it this time. Because verse 10 says, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. So it's not just that there's salvation on the other side of that faith tunnel. There's also stuff to do. 
that was planned a long time ago, before the foundation of the world, a whole life mapped out for you to live. And here's what struck me about it. Grace doesn't manifest itself in these uniform and predictable patterns and ways. In other words, it's not like I can say, I've seen grace in Cody's life in this moment, in this way, so I know that if I do the same things Cody did, I can get the same grace that Cody got. And anybody with two kids knows it's true because what works with one kid in one moment doesn't work with the other kid in the same moment. And what works with that kid in one moment doesn't work with that kid in the next moment. So what's God wanting to put on display? His immeasurable kindness to us in giving us grace. And he has planned for us good works for for us to do. Good works specifically for you to do. Why? Because God wants you dependent upon a person and not a process. Grace will rarely, if ever, show up in a sanitized, predictable, one-size-fits-all kind of a way in your everyday life. The one time that happens is salvation. And guess what? Even in that moment, it is different for all of us, the way that we meet that moment. Some of us grew up in church and meet the moment of need going, it's not enough to just be religiously performative. Some of us met God in a gutter. I have a friend who gave his life to Jesus. He says, I'm probably the only person in history to give his life to Jesus while holding a big fat blunt and uh, celebrating New Year's Day on Bourbon Street in New Orleans. I'm like, maybe. Grace meets us in those moments in different ways and manifests not in this uniform way that says all Christians should become mindless robots who follow Jesus in ways that make it easy for us to go, yes, everyone should do exactly the things that I do. Everyone should look exactly as I look and should engage their life exactly as I engage my life and engage their children and engage their difficulties and engage their questions in exactly the same pathway that I do. That would make no sense because none of you are exactly like me. And even if you were down to the DNA exactly like me, your whole experience of life would still be different than mine. Totally different than mine. You discover grace's power in the midst of your own mess. That's where grace is supposed to show up. That's where grace is supposed to manifest. That's where grace shines like the brightness of the sun piercing the darkness. Because grace allows you to live a righteous life. Grace allows you to manifest the fruit of the Spirit. Grace allows you to be different than everyone else around you. And by the way, different than who you used to be. Grace allows you to do that. Not discipline, not effort, not strength, not intelligence, not strategy. Grace meets you in the moments. Grace meets you in your moments, Paul himself said in, what is it, 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 9. He's talking about his own life. He says, everything was going great, and really I'm preaching, and in order that you wouldn't think that there's something special about me or the revelation that God gave to me, God sent a messenger of Satan, and there's a thorn in my flesh. And I had this thorn in my flesh, 
That he's like, he's saying, essentially he's saying, I had this ongoing pain and weakness that I have to deal with and I still have to live my life. Does that sound at all familiar to anybody? I have these ongoing pains, these open wounds, these issues that I'm dealing with that nobody else is dealing with. And here's what's beautiful about Paul's thorn in the flesh, which one of my friends was like, I think he actually had a thorn and he like couldn't reach it and was too embarrassed to tell people where it was so they would pull it out for him. It's like a real thorn. He doesn't tell us what it is, just like your thorns. You don't tell most people what they really are, do you? You don't tell people what the deep, most vulnerable wounds of you are. You keep it private. Paul says, I, I have this going on, and what's the purpose of all that? So that God could show to everyone that his power is perfected in our weakness. Here's what we want to hear from that. God makes me weak, then makes me strong, and by making me strong, he shows everyone how strong he is. That's not what Paul means, and that's not what he says, and that's not how grace works, and guess what? That's not encouraging or beautiful at all. That's just self-exalting. What he says is, I'm on this, like, I'm, I am swirling around going down the bathtub drain of weakness, lower and lower and lower into weakness. And I find as I'm losing more of myself and facing things that I don't know how to face, that I honestly have to say, I'm not equipped for this, grace meets me in those moments. His power shows up in those moments and meets me in those moments. And why is my life so difficult? Because you're alive. That's just the answer. And it isn't really all that satisfying or encouraging, but it's the honest answer. And what you would find is if you could read the vulnerabilities and the histories of the people that are in this room and the other people that you know, is that it's different and it's the same. That we're all walking around wounded. We're all walking around burdened. We're all walking around in difficult moments. Why? Because this world is not home. It's, it's not where we're supposed to be. It's not our community. It's not our culture. It's not our commander. It's not our, it's not our home. It's not where we are in. Here we are out. We're misfits. We don't belong, and so it's hard. It's light piercing darkness. It's truth countering lies. And it's a completely different existence than everybody else around you. And yet, it's just the same. And what does God want to do in the midst of that pain? Not make you impervious to pain. What does he want to do in the midst of difficulty? Not remove all of the difficulty. What does he want to do in the midst of loss and grief? Not magically remove the loss and the grief. What he wants to do is he wants to show everyone that grace makes a difference. That being in Christ makes a difference. It changes us. It changes everything. 
And even when we're not sure what we're supposed to do in the moment, just saying, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do in this moment. I'm not sure how I'm supposed to engage with these feelings and these desires and this loss and this pain and this grief. I'm not really sure what I'm supposed to do, but I know I'm safe in Christ and I know I'm going to get through it. Even that is a different experience than those who are not in Christ. Dallas Willard who I love what he writes, he has this to say about discipleship. Because I don't know about you, but for a long time for me, I thought discipleship was the process of getting better at Christianity so I didn't need Jesus so much anymore. Like knowing enough information that I'd finally stop sinning. You know what I'm saying? Like reprogramming my life. But here's what Dallas Willard says. He says, uh, he says discipleship is the process of becoming who Jesus would be if he were you. Not if Jesus were living his own life here. The discipleship is the process of becoming who Jesus would be if he were you. Engaging your own life with grace, with the gospel, and with hope. You were dead, but you're not dead anymore. But I want you to know, if you are dead, such good news, such good news. You can be made alive with Christ. You can be seated in him in the heavenlies. What's required? <laughs> Just honesty that you can't do it, but Jesus already has. So let's take a moment. I wanna invite you to bow your head, to close your eyes, or to just like consider. You don't have to close your eyes if you don't want to, but I wanna invite you to just consider. Where are you? Are you still in your sin or are you in Christ? Are you still trying to deal with your own mess? Are you still trying to deal with your own sin? Are you still trying to figure it out on your own and overcome it on your own and be good enough and smart enough and capable enough on your own? And hoping beyond hope that that's enough. It's not. And it's right for God to punish sin but it's wrong for you to believe that you have to take the punishment because all the punishment was poured out on Jesus. That's why he died. And those of you who are in Christ, you should remember where you're from. We should remember where we're from. We should remember that that doesn't take away pain and it doesn't take away loss and it doesn't take away grief. It doesn't take away difficulty. But it creates space and opportunity for grace to invade and everything to be different. The whole experience of it to be different. We take the Lord's Supper during our response time those of us who are followers of Jesus, and we take it to remind ourselves and to proclaim both to ourselves and to everyone who is present. The death of Jesus is what made me right with God. The night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, he broke it, he gave it to his followers, and he said, as often as you do this, you're doing it in remembrance of me, this is my body. It's been broken for you, for the sins of many. That's the purpose and then in a like way, it says, he took the new cup, the cup of the new covenant. And he said, this is my blood, which is poured out for the remission or the forgiveness of your sin. So we, we take that every week 
to remind ourselves of what Jesus has done for us. The offering boxes are there. We have the offering boxes there as a reminder to those of us who are in Christ particularly. We're under his lordship and we want to remind ourselves he's worthy of it all. He's worthy of it all. And we're not going to let anything supplant his supremacy in our lives. When writing to the Corinthian church, Paul talks about the Macedonians and how generous they are. And he says, I want you to excel in this grace. Excel in this grace, the grace of giving. And I was thinking about that as I was thinking about this moment. And here's what I realized. It's only an act of grace that I get to participate in the mission of God. That I get to be part of it. I want to encourage you to give. Whatever the Lord's laid on your heart, that's the important part. And giving it with great joy, with no condemnation. So if it's like a button and part of a cheeseburger, then you give it with great joy and no condemnation. Probably won't keep those things, but that isn't the point of giving. That's not why we give. We love to sing. I'll be available in the back to pray with anyone who needs it. I want to encourage you, just take a moment. Consider where you are. Just consider where you are. Consider where you're from. Ask God, is there anything I need to do this morning? Anything you would like me to do? And then do it. Let me pray for us. God, thanks for these moments together. Thanks for this moment of response. Thanks for this place. And the people who sacrificed so much to make it so beautiful. We love you because you love us. We're grateful. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. When you're ready, you can come and take the Lord's Supper. We'll sing in just a few. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Red Hill Church Sermon Podcast. If you have any questions about this message, our church, or the gospel, or if you'd like to get in touch with one of our elders, you can visit our website at www.redhill.church. Navigate to the I'm New tab and click the option for Connection Card. Filling out this online card will allow you to get in touch with us and one of our elders will follow up as soon as possible. Thanks for listening and be sure to check back next week as we continue to study and apply God's Word together.